Would you join me this morning, please, in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as we continue our series through this gospel account. I would like to read to you verses 6 through 10. John chapter 17. The Bible says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. They have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. So as we go through the gospel, according to John on Sunday mornings, we're at the place now where Jesus is praying for His disciples after He has given them what is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. It's the longest discourse recorded in the Bible of Christ. It spans from chapters 13 through 16, and many would include chapter 17 in this as well. And Jesus just got done replacing the Passover with the Lord's Memorial Supper. As He was doing these things, and as He replaced the Passover with the Lord's Memorial Supper, He's teaching them a lesson. And obviously, He's given that ordinance to the church. We still observe that today. We have engraved in the table here, this do in remembrance of Me. We serve the bread, we serve the wine as a reminder that Christ gave His body, shed His blood, for us. And Jesus, he, he does this to teach them, I'm about to be sacrificed. And through that meal and through their conversations that they're going to have, as they're in this discourse, Jesus is preparing them for what's going to lie ahead. He's trying to teach them some very important lessons so that they will be able to understand once the crucifixion events begin to unfold that the Father had it all planned. And he's, he's teaching them this lesson, and he's, he's trying to get them to see, look, you're about to go through it. You're about to go through some hard times. And as they leave the upper room, they start making their way down the Mount of Olives, and somewhere along that journey, Jesus stops with them, and Jesus prays to the Father. He taught them, now He prays for them. And we're very close to Jesus' crucifixion at this point. After this prayer, they're going to cross over the brook Kidron. And they're going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus will pray again. And there Judas Iscariot will come and will betray the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of sinners. Jesus' earthly ministry focused on Him being a prophet. Moses said a prophet would come. Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus will one day return, amen? He's returning as our King. He will reign upon this earth. But in between that, in between prophet and king, Jesus is our priest. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And right now, He's functioning as our great high priest. In fact, many will call this prayer the high priestly prayer of Christ. I want you to notice the first phrase of verse 9. It says, I pray for them. Would you just let that sink in? 
Jesus says, I pray for them. God is saying, I pray for them. Can you understand the weight of what's being said here? It's wonderful to have people pray for you, amen? It's wonderful to have certain people pray for you. Because there are certain people that we know of that can get a hold of God. And they don't just walk by and say, all right, I'll be praying for you. And then it's forgotten. I mentioned in the morning service, Mama Della, we call her, Tiffany's mom. I like to know she's praying for me. She gets a hold of God. But Jesus says, I pray for you. How much better is that than any earthly person could do? This is such an amazing truth to get a hold of. Just imagine Jesus praying for you. I think it's enough for even the driest of Baptists to get excited. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And honestly, at this point, as we think about the Lord praying for us, we could read the entirety of the book of Hebrews and be well served. As we think about Christ being our high priest. But I just want to pull some passages out here in an effort to show you the significance of Jesus being our high priest. Would you look with me in Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 1 through 7. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made... The first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And we find here that under the old covenant, under the law covenant, there was an earthly high priest who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, which was behind the veil. There was daily activity within the sanctuary. And if you could envision a curtain, a veil across the front here, we might think of this as the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a high priest would go in there with an offering, take the blood of the animal sacrifice, and he would apply it to the mercy seat, sprinkling it upon there, But why was he doing that? The Bible says there in verse 7 that the high priest had to do that not just for the errors of the people, but what does it say? For himself also. He was a sinner. He was not perfect. He had sin that had to be dealt with as well. All of us need a Savior. None of us are perfect. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, 
can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. We understand now and Keep in mind, the writer here is addressing the Hebrews, and they would have understood this more than the Gentiles would in their day. We have the privilege of having a completed Word of God, and we can look at it a little bit differently than probably the Gentiles of that day could, not having a copy of the Word of God then. And so we look at this, and maybe it makes a little bit more sense to us, but understand he's addressing the Hebrews, and they're going to understand exactly what's being said, but what he's saying here is that the law was only a shadow of Christ who was to come. And we see that all those sacrifices which were offered under the old covenant could never make anybody perfect. All those sacrifices were is they were a constant reminder that they were sinners in need of a Savior. That they could not save themselves. And it was not possible, it says in verse 4, that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It wasn't even a possibility. He said, why was God requiring it then? Because God was trying to teach them that there was a Christ who was going to arrive one day who would offer Himself as the perfect Lamb of God. I believe with all my heart that the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are all saved by the same means. And that's through the blood of Christ. I believe that. And so they were looking ahead to Christ. We look back to what Christ did. And it wasn't possible that those would take away sin. In fact, the Bible says throughout the Old Testament, all those things, they made an atonement for sin. What does that mean? It means it only covered it over. It didn't remove it, it just covered it over. It made an atonement for their sin. But there was always the reminder. And every year the high priest had to go in and (laughs) had to remember for himself, I'm in need of a Savior. And so it wasn't possible that it would would take away sin, but it was pointing to the coming perfect sacrifice, the perfect blood of Christ. Let's keep reading in chapter 10 and verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, but this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And isn't this good? 
and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there's no more offering of sin. Jesus, as our great high priest, did you get all that there? He only needed to offer himself once. For all sins, forever. Once. (laughs) And this sacrifice... In the sacrifice of Christ, there is now no more offering that will ever be made for sin. Ever. And His sacrifice and His blood makes the sinner who will receive Him perfect, sanctified, justified, reconciled, and forgiven of all sin. And understand this morning that if you're in Christ, we stand complete. And when Jesus offered Himself upon the cross... And he cried out, it is finished. The Bible says that the veil in the temple which separated the holy place from the holy of holies was rent in twain from top to bottom because Christ made a way. He gave us access into the holiest of all. Hallelujah. Man had been denied access. Because the perfect Lamb of God had not yet been offered. Look at verses 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. Man had been on the outside looking in. And really, they couldn't even look in. They were just on the outside. They couldn't even look in because the veil was there. Only the high priest could go in there once a year, and if he messed it up, he'd die. (laughs) Man was on the outside. But when Christ died in our place, He made the way for mankind to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. And now we have boldness or we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. And what does verse 21 say? And having an high priest over the house of God. What happened? Christ confirmed the new covenant. This is the new covenant according to Hebrews 8.6, which is based upon better promises. It's a better covenant. Hebrews 12.24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And while under the old covenant there was always a remembrance of sins, under the new covenant God said, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The old covenant only provided an atonement for sin. But under the new covenant, the blood of Christ washes away our sin. Hallelujah! Our sins are gone. They are cast into God's sea of forgetfulness. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Christ's blood removes sin. It takes away sin. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Our high priest is better... Our high priest is better than anything that is upon this earth. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.11, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that's to say, not of this building. Guess what? 
We don't need to go to an earthly priest this morning to confess our sins. That ought to make you shout right there. We don't have to go into a box and kneel down on a little thing and wait for some guy to open up a little door at the screen and we say, Father, I've sinned. Will you forgive me? I don't say that to no earthly priest. Hey, because i got a great high priest that's entered into heaven on my behalf. And the Bible says that we can enter boldly before His throne. Yeah, they've changed the Bible. Their Bible says that you have to confess your sins one to another. But the old book, the King James Bible, still says confess your faults one to another. We don't go to confess our sins. Amen. You don't have to come to me to confess your sins. I ain't got time for that. Because y'all are some wicked folk. We have direct access. Listen, this is one of the distinctives of our Baptist faith. The acrostic, the P stands for priesthood of the believer. You have direct access to God. You don't come through me. You don't come through the church. You don't go through the waters of the baptism. You go through the blood. We don't need a mediatrix. We don't need Mary. We have our mediator. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hallelujah. Now, that's what He did for us as our great high priest. That's how He became our great high priest. But He's still active as our high priest. What is He doing now? Exactly what our text says in John 17, 9. I pray for you. He's praying for us. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. And if you go back in Hebrews and you look in the previous chapters, the writer there had just talked about Melchizedek and his priesthood. He said, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. The Bible says he's a minister as a high priest. What does it mean to minister? It means to serve. How is he serving? We know he cannot be serving us through sacrifices. He's the perfect sacrifice. There's not going to be another one offered. So how is he serving us? He's serving us by praying for us. That's how he's ministering. And there's so many precious truths within true biblical Christianity that it's hard to imagine that anybody would prefer the world's religion over what this Bible says. I mean, really, I'm being serious. It's, it's hard to understand. There, there's so many precious things about true Christianity. Now, all that was an introduction to give you my point. <laughs> don't let that fall. Don't be in fear, Wyvette. We're going to get out of here on time. Jesus prays for us, but unlike religions, Jesus knows how to pray for us because He lived upon this earth. What other deity can say that? Now, you'll find in the Islamic faith that they believe Allah prays. But did he come to this earth and live 33 and a half years? No other deity can claim this. In true Christianity, God has not just left us to ourselves. Listen, we, we could never save ourselves. God knew that. God came down to us. 
He condescended himself. He humbled himself. He came down to us. But he didn't just come down to die for us. He didn't just come down at the age of 33 and a half and lay down his life. He didn't just show up one day on the scene. Listen, he was born. He was born of a virgin. The Bible says, in the fullness of time, made under the law, made of a woman, Christ came to redeem us. He lived among us. The Bible uses this term, he tabernacled among us. For 33 and a half years, he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of God. This is why we have such an high priest. Listen, I want you to get this. If you've been tuning me out, I want you to tune me in, please. Jesus is not out of touch with you. Jesus understands what it is you're going through. He understands the weaknesses you have. He understands the temptations you go through yet without sin. Which means this, He not only knows how to pray for you, He knows how to get victory. Listen, there's no other God which can claim what God has done on our behalf. Why did He do all of this for us? So that He could pray for us as our high priest. Would you look at Hebrews chapter 4, just a second. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands our infirmities our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. I know in America that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But it still does in many parts of the world. When Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says afterwards He wasn't hungered. I teased this morning, my wife has a hard time going one meal without getting hangry. Amen, sis. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. And he gets there, he goes to the well, give me to drink. Of course, he was teaching a lesson, but he was thirsty because the Bible says that on that same journey when he got there, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey. He knows what it's like to be weary. Listen to me now. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated. He said, man, everybody hates me. Several times in the gospel accounts, we find the council conspiring to kill Jesus. The people would take up stones hoping to stone Him. Jesus knows what it's like to be in agony. The Bible says while He earnestly prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Because He was under such stress. And he knew it was only going to get, to get worse after that. He would be tortured. Jesus knows what it's like to be mocked. On crucifixion day, they stripped him of his clothes and they put a purple robe on him and they took a crown of thorns and they mashed it into his head and they gave him a reed as like a scepter. And then they bowed before him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! 
They mocked him. He knows what that's like. Jesus knows what it's like to be reviled. What it's like to be vilified, to be defamed, to be railed on and to be evil spoken of. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer pain. He was scourged. They punched Him. They slapped Him. They beat Him. They pulled His beard out of His face. They spit upon Him. They pierced His hands and His feet when they nailed Him to that old rugged cross. He knows what it's like to be in pain. He knows what it's like to suffer shame and disgrace. They nailed Him to the cross naked for all the world to see His shame. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer rejection. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The greatest rejection was when the son cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God had to reject Christ because He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Make no mistake about it. Jesus knows your infirmities. He knows how to pray for you. Listen, who better to pray for you? But listen, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to sin as well. You say, but He was sinless. He doesn't... The Bible says He was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. We know He was tempted after He fasted in the wilderness. And we often think that the temptation only came at the end of that fasting, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 2 that He was tempted 40 days of the devil. We only have recorded for us the three temptations which took place after He fasted. The devil tempted Jesus to command a stone to be made bread. Hey, I know you're hungry. The devil offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and all their power and glory if he would just worship the devil. The devil tempted him, cast yourself down when they were on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, the angels have a charge to keep you, lest thou dash thy foot upon a stone. But through every temptation, Jesus just kept quoting the Word of God back at him. Amen. In Luke twenty two twenty eight, 28, Jesus said to His disciples, Ye are they which have continued with Me in My temptations. Even when Christ was on the cross, they continued to mock Him and even to tempt Him. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44 say, And they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself, he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the thieves cast the same in his teeth. If that wasn't a temptation to call more than 12 legions of angels, which Christ had at His disposal, then I don't know what is. I think we understand how you and I would have reacted. Oh yeah? You ever heard of Elijah? I can call down fire. Jesus didn't do that, hallelujah. 
Thank God he didn't come down from the cross. We wouldn't have salvation. Not only that, listen now, if he would have come down from the cross, he would have been in sin because he would have been disobedient to his father. And he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Thank God he stayed on that cross. But make no mistake about it, Jesus knows what it's like for you to be tempted. And I'll promise you, his temptations were more difficult than what you're going through. And I'll promise you this, his infirmities were more than you'll deal with. Brother DeGarmo said in Sunday school, we haven't resisted unto blood. Who better to pray for us? Who better to pray for us than the one who overcame every temptation yet without sin? Listen to this in Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is also able to succor or to help them that are tempted. He knows all that we go through. And He prays for us. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities and our temptations. Meaning this, He has sympathy for us. He has compassion on us. Some of you battling a sin and you meet somebody else battling that same sin, you've got maybe a little bit more compassion for them than somebody else who's never been in that sin. Because some of us get real proud and say, all you got to do is say no. Hey, listen, that's kind of hard for somebody addicted. And sometimes somebody else comes along who was once addicted, and then you say, look, I know exactly what you're going through. I can sympathize with you. I can be compassionate. Jesus said, look, I know what you're going through. He didn't have to sin to do it. He knows what you're going through. He's got sympathy for that. He, he understands. He has compassion. And because he was without sin, I'll remind you once again, that he knows the way of escape. That's why he can offer it. But listen to this this morning. He will not force you to do right. But He is praying for you. I can't force you to listen. But I sure pray that you do. I can't force you to respond. But I sure pray that you do. Jesus doesn't force us to do anything. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. That thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, we would think after Peter heard that news from the Lord, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat, that if we heard something like that, we would pray for ourselves. Right? I mean, I think that's kind of understood. We would think that would happen. And whether Peter did or didn't, I don't know. Of course, we might look at his response and say, well, he didn't. I don't know. But I know this, that's not where Jesus left it. Jesus didn't say, hey Peter, Satan has desired to have you, now good luck, go and pray. But he said, I have prayed for you. <laughs> Listen, before the temptation, I have prayed for you. What a thought this morning. How much do we owe to Jesus praying for us? I don't know if we'll ever know. Maybe one day in glory. How much do we owe to His watch care over us that we never see? Before Satan assaulted Peter, Jesus said, I prayed for you. Jesus prays for us against our unseen enemy. What a comfort to know, amen? Charles Spurgeon wrote, How encouraging is the thought of the Redeemer's never-ceasing intercession for us 
When we pray, he pleads for us. And then when we are not praying, he is advocating our cause and by his supplications, shielding us from unseen dangers, end quote. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 26, it says, But this man, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And what I'm hoping you can do this morning is that you can leave out of here armed with the assurance and armed with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is praying for you. And get this, this means you don't have to fear. You say, but there's a virus out there. Jesus is praying for you. God, He's watching over you. He's praying for you. He loves you enough that He lived among us so that He might identify with us, understand our infirmities and our temptations, that He might become a faithful and merciful high priest. And He's able to help those who will be helped. Did you hear what I said? He's able to help those who are willing to be helped. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He's able to help. you got to go to the throne of grace and get the help. So do you need help this morning? Then if you're in Christ, you can run to the Holy of Holies confidently on the merits of Christ's blood and you can cry before your great high priest. Maybe you don't have Jesus as your great high priest because you've never been saved. Listen, He's not your high priest until you become saved. You must accept the Savior before you get the high priest. And what you need to do is stop trusting in your own sacrifices. You can never take away sin. But you must trust in Christ as your Passover lamb. Trust only in His blood to wash your sins away. Then you can enter into the holiest of all through Christ. Would you pray with me, please?